Today's episode of Pixel Sift is brought to you by Audible. Over 180,000 titles for you to listen to on your iPhone, your Kindle, your MP3 player, and more. If you'd like to get a free trial, your free audiobook, you can head to www.audibletrial.com forward slash pixelsift and grab one there. Hey there, welcome to episode 63 of Pixel Sift. My name is Gianni. I am back in the Murdoch studios where we usually live. Um, and having mixed feelings about that. Having mixed feelings about that, but it's always good <laughs> to be home in your studio. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mitch and Scott. Thanks hey, hey. for joining us. Hey. Later in the episode today, we're going to be talking a little bit to Justine Collar. We spoke to her a little bit beforehand about her game, A Township Tale. Uh, Very interesting, very cool, uh, and it was very great to chat to her. But we're going to be talking about some other stuff today as well, aren't we? What else are we checking out? Yeah, you know him, you love him. It's Donald Trump, and he's stopped people from coming into going into America, and it's affecting games now, which means it affects us now. (laughs) Sad face. Yeah, and we'll also be looking at the recent axing of Steam's green light service. That's what we've got coming up. All that and more. Right now, though, let's jump in. Pixel Sift. <laughs> Pixel Sift. No, seriously, Pixel Sift. <laughs> no, seriously. Pixel Sift. For the past four years, Steam Greenlight has provided the tools for developers to get their games out there. The service is credited with launching a tremendous amount of indie games, many of which come from right here in Australia. With Steam getting ready to switch off the green light, what other options do budding game developers have? Well, prayers have been instantly answered as Valve present us Steam Direct, the successor to the green light service. Scott, what is Steam Direct? Yes, okay, well, it's obviously fresh, so I haven't actually jumped into it and sunk my teeth into it yet, but... From from what uh, well, from what we know so far, it's basically a new path for developers to get their stuff out there. Uh, Valve are going to uh, step back a little bit and not be in charge of what games make it to Greenlight, or you know, for now to Steam Direct. And basically, uh, developers will have to pay a, char- a cover charge of between say two hundred and five thousand dollars. They're yet to sort that out to put their game up there, and then it'll be in the hands of um, the you know the players to decide what games make it up to the top and and are going to be successful. Well, I think it's just, this is a really interesting sort of premise because basically what happened in before Greenlight was in, in place, there was many people who really wanted to get their game onto Steam, um, but the process of doing so was kind of a bit uh, opaque. There wasn't really a, a clear way to do that. You know, your big companies like Activision, the EAs and stuff, they already had relationships with Valve, so they were able to get their games up there. But if you're a, you know, a small developer, like someone who made something like Stardew Valley, which is a really popular uh, game, there probably wasn't really a good avenue for you to get your game in. So Greenlight came in and it was sort of like a votes campaign where basically you could get all the people that you've spoken to at conventions and all sorts of other bits and pieces. Everyone, you know, all your mum and your aunties and all that to vote on, on Steam Green. Your favourite podcast producers. Exactly. Get <laughs> as many people as you possibly can to vote for it and then you will get your game onto the store once it's been greenlit. Um, so as it worked before, anyone could just stick their game onto Greenlight? Is anyone that could do it yeah. at all. Okay. And originally the, the idea was that there would be sort of like a review process. So, mm-hmm. you know, you'd hit your threshold in votes um, and then your review would basically go 
from there. And then Valve would say, yes, these games have made it. And interestingly okay. enough, uh, one of the first games that made it onto the Steam, uh, through the Steam Greenlight process was Stirfire Studios from Perth with their game Freedomfall. Um, and that was, yeah, one of the first ones that kind of made it through that process. But it was like a months-long process. You didn't know how far you were. You couldn't see how many votes you had. Right. And then all of a sudden it said, here, these people have made it into the store. Um, so this new method is basically... A, Throughout numbers, numerous number of changes that they've had, Greenlight basically, uh, the process got easier. It wasn't such an arduous thing to get to the point and it was almost like automatic approval. As long as there weren't any big issues, you would kind of get through. So one of the criticisms they had was that because anyone, as you said, Mitch, can go and chuck their game on there, um, there was sort of a quality issue kind of associated with it that most of the games that kind of made through Greenlight, some people argued that there wasn't the you know the quality or the control up to the bar. And it meant that with all these new games coming out, it was very difficult to fight through the noise to make your good game stick out so that people could see it. Um, unfortunately, now, like, Steam may end up getting a lot more of those you know bad games but um they they've come out saying well valve point has pointed out the de- definition of you know a bad game is fairly you know up to everybody else it's in the it's, it's in the eyes of the uh, the controller player yes exactly oh, nice. yeah i knew there was a pun there somewhere yeah. um there's there's a couple of ways to look at this I, I feel there's there's obvious um you know profit and um, increase in revenue that steam will get from you know this this uh, this pay to play, I guess, um, side for the developers. Um, but there is the other side where, yeah, the community is going to be res- a lot more responsible for the games that are going to be successful. And uh, I-, I see that side of things being really good. And, th- and they've been pushing this whole um, getting out of the way um, like idea that like you know, they-, they felt like they were kind of holding back a lot of games. You know, they, they were quoted as saying, you know, that they- they'd go to... Going, get into a room with a bunch of games and there'd be 400 games and they'd be like, okay, we need to pick 10. And obviously, they're going to be games that miss out there. So they they see themselves holding up and uh, the the whole kind of process and real bottle bottle really bottlenecking it. What I think is a really interesting sort of comparison, and I'm sure Scott, you can speak to this a little bit. But <laughs> for for music artists and yeah, people yeah. who are making CDs, you know, you, you maybe there's the, obviously the publisher model where you have like a record label kind of providing all the money for all of the production of it. But there is also things like distribution deals, and that's what Steam is. It's a distribution platform, and some of those deals you do need to pay a certain amount in order to get your CDs in X number of stores or on X number of digital download stores, and that's kind of the model that it works. Not every single one is like that, but that's how it does work in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, especially on this indie level. Uh, yeah, that thing, those kind of things do exist and are well used and can be quite successful. Um, obviously, handing over money uh, for someone to you know, uh, put your work out there is always a little bit questionable, but I, mean, th- I think Valve and Steam has grown to be a credible you know, place for that kind of thing to happen. What do you think, Mitch? <laughs> At the end of the day, I think it's uh, it, this something like this needs to exist because the way indie games are presented to audiences now, I think it works pretty well, but it can't go away because otherwise, how are they going to get their games out there? It it just seems that well, look, there's... Steam is just where players go to get games now, mm. and it would be a shame to Interestingly lose Interestingly enough, Mitch... Service. Itch.io, uh, which is another online, yeah. uh, it's I kind of like to think of it like the band camp of uh, game 
yep. distribution, uh, basically came out and said, hey, we've introduced itch.io direct and it's free to list <laughs> your game and free to sell it and all that stuff. That is incredibly smart. So, you know, they are kind of playing at this model and there are other options to do that. There's the Humble Store as well, which yep. is very popular. You could put your game up on uh, GOG, G-O-G, um, plenty of other stores out there as well. And you could even stick it on EA's Origin if you really felt like it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there are other options for us to put these these games on there and, you know, whether or not Steam is the, the kingmaker that everyone thinks it is, is going to be something we kind of have to... Well, as as one of the biggest marketplaces on the internet, I thought they, they at least had a little bit of responsibility to kind of keep that going. And it was in their best interest too. Definitely. At least they weren't happy cops. They want happy customers, apparently, and uh, more games make customers happy. So that's what they're trying to do. And they feel that their good games will naturally rise to the top. So this will work, they, they think. The, the capitalist system will yeah. sort everyone out. Actually, a really uh, interesting metric that came out of this whole conversation was uh, Valve claims that despite having more games than ever on Steam, key metrics like the time people spend playing games and the number of games that make more than $200,000 in their first three months is on the rise. Really? Which I thought was... Uh, Pretty interesting. Very interesting. Great, great news. That's great because apparently 2016 was a bad year for video games. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. I disagree, but I read, I just read a lot of like doomsday articles. Pish posh. Yeah. Well, look. Apparently. Uh, look, you know, there are still details to be worked out and sort of once all the, the details kind of come out, we'll see exactly what the impact of, of this new system is um, and whether it's a, an improvement or whether it still needs to go back to the drawing board. Right now, though, let's jump into our interview with Justine Collar. Pixel Sim! It's not Pixel Sim. It's Pixel Sift. Pixel Sim! Tough. Justine Collar joined us earlier today. We talked all about her game, A Township Tale. She's from Alta, uh, which is a creating, and, and the game itself, Township, is, well, maybe we should let uh, Justine describe it, shall we? So A Township Tale is an open-world sandbox social VR multiplayer experience, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, but I'm. it's kind of hard to put it either way because if you say it's sandbox, then people think it's, Something different if you say it's social, they're going to think it's like a second life thing. It's just, it all needs to, <laughs> we're making something really kind of uh, unique here, which is what the Guardian said when they tried it at um, PAX, which was awesome. Um, but pretty much players explore a forgotten village and use its resources to survive and cultivate the land. And everyone takes on a role and works together to uh, form a society within this village and do uh to do things together so you can go exploring with people or you can just play really passively as an innkeeper or if you want to go mining and then work with the blacksmith, you can be a farmer. There's all these kind of things, but depending on which server you go on, uh, there'll be different goals uh, and different, they could just be like a completely, you know, do whatever the hell you want sandbox server where things just happen naturally and really organically, or there's a server that you can go on that has, it's like a challenge server and has a lot of rules. So, uh, what we're trying to build with the township tale is just like, you know, the world is your oyster in virtual reality. Um, so how many people are we talking really about you know, on a server? Are we talking 10, 20, 200, 1,000? It'll be, right now we're talking about 16 per server. So that'll be the max. We don't want to, it's not an MMO. So we're not going to have like 60,000 people on one server at a time. And it's our current, uh, the current map that we're building, which should hopefully end up becoming the, the shipped version is four kilometers by four kilometers. So we think that's big enough for a server that has 16 
people that can either split off or they can all be in one area together and kind of explore in different areas. So, yeah. So you mentioned a little bit about how people are kind of come together and, and, and work and, 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 you know, maybe someone decides to be like a blacksmith or a, an innkeeper or something like that. What happens if, uh, yep. you know, you've got one mate there who's a, a real jerk and just decides to ruin all the fun for everyone? Well, that's pretty much uh, what we usually say when we kind of do the pitch at people. It's like, will, will players be able to work together cohesively and survive or will the society crumble as time goes on? So it it really, and it's, the idea of this game came from uh, our lead designer, Boromir's, uh social experiments in Minecraft. So that was something that he was always really interested in, which is kind of how the idea formed to make this. And that's the thing, like, hey, if someone's being a jerk on that particular day that you're playing a township tale, you might not have, you know, the most enriching experience. I mean, it's always going to be a, an amazing enriching, but it's like kind of like real life where, you know, you might just have a bad day in, you know, this, uh, in a township tale on this particular day because this one jerk isn't trying to help everyone out. And but it's like, how can you turn that around? How can you uh, use your role in within this society, within the game, to either work around this person uh, or, you know, it's it's kind of, it's really open-ended and it's really exciting when we see and we go to like an RTX or PAX to see players, our eventual customers get into the game and how creative they can be uh, with the demo. There's, there's a lot of like uh, the similar cultures in some of the GTA environments where you can kind of see that players are dishing out justice to bullies online and like, and if someone's not doing something that the rest of the server really likes, so they they kind of like go to fix them and like and dish out their injustice. Is that something that you want to support in a Township Tale? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I remember playing. So my friend and I, when I was in high school, we used to love to be jerks and go into the role playing servers in uh, Counter Strike, and those were so hilarious because there's always someone it was like this very dystopian world that you would play in and then they they had a prison inside the game so if you're like messing with other people you'd have the guard come over and if he hit you with the baton that you got sent to the like the in-game jail for two minutes and it's like my friend and I we would be on Skype at the time just like giggling like school school children every time we got put in jail and like these are the kind of things that we would hope that to put in a township tale as well that someone can take on uh, like a sheriff or a guard role and actually become kind of the person that has to deal with these human conflicts and what is the best way uh, to to resolve that. How much of that are you going to, to build into the game and how much of it is going to be, I guess, player-driven and kind of making up their own rules? Uh, 80% of the game is going to be um, player-driven. So uh, someone asked me about this recently when I was on a panel about, you know, how do we do storytelling in uh, VR? Because it's kind of the same now if you have a, in uh, console games, if you have a, uh, like a, an instance that, a cutscene, sorry, and a lot like a live action cutscene. And it's like, how do you know that your player is looking in the correct direction to see what is the most interesting information at the time? And everyone was kind of going down the lines and saying things like this, but I was like, 
that's not what we're doing with the township tale. There's not going to be anything, no very linear narrative. There's going to be kind of backstory and stuff, but it's going to be very player driven. And like you and me right now, we're actually creating a story, having this conversation. That's what people are going to be doing in a township tale. So it's all very player driven. Uh, and it's all about the experiences that you have within that. Like when I used to play WoW when I was in high school, um, a lot of my favorite memories back then is just kind of the dumb stuff that uh, me and my friends would do when we used to go on quests together. And I don't even remember what quests we were doing, but I still remember kind of the antics we would get up to just ourselves. I imagine a lot of jumping was involved uh, if my WoW experience was anything <laughs> like yours. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting. When I played the build at PAX um, on the floor, I, I had a really interesting moment where I was just mucking around. I had a bow and arrow and I was trying to shoot an arrow into the sky and have it land on my head. Um, don't know why. just felt like that was the thing to do at the time. Do you time. want to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just wanted to see what the consequences of the world were. And, you know, I, was, I had the bow and arrow. I was having a lot of fun with it. And then I saw someone basically pop into the world and was mining away and picking things up and all that sort of stuff. And just in my head, I immediately thought that this person must be an NPC. Um, but I walked over there. I had a bow and arrow basically Do uh, it. You know, right behind him. The guy turns around and goes, Kill him. Oh, hey, how you going? And I'm like, oh. And I had a real moral conundrum that I don't think I've actually yeah. had in a game before because I guess obviously there's always rules in the game where you think, um, you know, I'm going to get punished in this. I'm going to lose points. But it kind of felt like real-world societal rules. Like you can't just go shoot someone in the back of the head with a bow and arrow. It's pretty pretty much universally frowned upon. So, yeah, it was a really, really fascinating experience. And I, I don't think I've had anything quite like that in VR before. But, but it could be just, you know, the fact that, you know, there are real people in a real world. You must come with me to the land of GTA. Yeah. <laughs> And that's what's so exciting about VR because a lot of people who haven't tried VR don't actually understand how visceral and immersive the experience is. And I tell this to a lot of people, but which I don't think anyone quite realizes, you know, on a mainstream level yet, but people actually retain memories in VR as if they experience them in real life. And what I mean by that is if someone is in a township tale and they teleport really close to you, you actually kind of go, ah, because it's like, oh my God, you're in my personal space. Like that was weird. And you actually, in real life, you actually kind of jump back, even though you're still got the headset on and everything. So it's very immersive experiences that uh, it, it kind of, it, even though it's an online multiplayer, it's a completely different experience than what you would be having yeah, uh, like through the desktop when you actually know, hey, I'm playing an avatar that's in this world, the suspension of disbelief is far, far higher. Um, sorry, lower. And then when you're in VR having these experiences, it's like it's almost you. we get people that come out. They're like, whoa, I just completely forgot that I was in actually real life. And some people get real scared because they start thinking about the Matrix and then they're like very existential, like are we actually in the Matrix right now? Do you know what you should do as a public service? You should always uh, film people while they're in VR and you can see them flailing their arms around as uh, some of the Pixel Sift crew did while I was in the uh, VR headset. It's always very <laughs> valuable <laughs> to see. Um, now, funny. I, I, you mentioned a little bit about uh, like kind of personal space and uh, that's something I'm kind of curious about in this virtual reality world. You know, we have kind of personal space rules in the real world, but in a world yeah. that is kind of completely created, how do you stop people from, from doing things to other people that just wouldn't be okay? Pepper spray. Yeah. <laughs> so we actually Virtual have to program 
safety into the game and actually kind of design it from a core level. And that's what's really beneficial about going to PAX and going to RTX is that uh, as a township tells it a very, very uh, new or kind of like a baby or toddler stage of its life form, as is the VR industry, there's not a lot of kind of rules or standards right now about, you know, what is obviously uh, we do know that personal space in VR multiplayer is very important, but kind of like what is more, uh, what is, we don't have enough information past that, especially when it comes to harassment in VR. So it's really, really beneficial for us to, uh, right now at this stage, be able to go to conventions really, because every time we have someone go through, we're monitoring what the gameplay is and we're seeing what are these patterns that people do. For example, everyone loves to go into a township town and just start shooting each other with arrows. And Not I me. personally don't like getting shot <laughs> uh, in, in a township town with arrows. So, so it's like, okay, so do we, you know, set up some kind of PVP? Is that like an opt in or it's, it's, you know, we're having a lot of brainstorming sessions about which is the best way to go about it. And there's not a lot of information or enough games out currently that have already play tested this enough. So we're kind of exciting and scary in a way that we're kind of one of the pioneers in this multiplayer VR space. And we are kind of coming up with the rules ourselves. Look, it's uh, definitely a very interesting game. Uh, I would recommend if you have an opportunity to, to that play That might be it. the most badass quote ever yeah. on Pixel Civ. Yeah, we're breaking into the real world of, <laughs> of you know, breaking eggs and breaking heads with, uh, you know, mind picks and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Justine, if people want to find out a bit more information about your game or, you know, maybe they want to give it a go, where's the best place for them yes. to head to? So for more information in terms of social media, we're on Facebook. If you search for Alter VR, um, we should come up there. And on Twitter, we are at Township Tale. Now, if you want to find out more information straight to your inbox and find out about possible access to our future closed beta, if you go to townshiptale.com, there's a sign up there and but if, as soon as people become part of our community, and if you, uh, even if you don't have a Vive uh, or Oculus yet, we really, in, and you're just interested in VR, we really want to connect with you and get your feedback. And yeah, if you do have a Vive or Oculus, then when our closed alpha comes out, we'd absolutely love to have as many people give that a go as possible. And, uh, you know, you can give Justine a follow on Twitter and see her uh, phenomenal art and a lot of wrestling-related uh, <laughs> content. Um, and that's, I was uh, hoping you wouldn't bring that up. Oh, it's, it's very uh, – you're very passionate about wrestling. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's at Pasta Saucer. So, Justine, thanks yeah. for joining us. Uh, we're looking forward to giving Township Tale another go at, in the future. And for everyone who is listening, they can check out all the links in the show notes for this episode. You're listening to Pixel All right, so the Donald Trump travel ban has now begun to affect games with companies, company CEOs such as from from Blizzard and other and Harmonix and other big name companies saying that it's actually affecting their workflow and the employees that are working on games at their companies. So I guess. Where are we now with this travel ban and how is it really affecting games? So, very interestingly, 
the a lot of the tech industry and all the people involved in the tech industry have come out really strongly against the travel ban, um, which for people who don't know is a restriction or a limitation on the number of uh, people who can enter the country and people who have uh, uh, green cards, which are like a working visa for the United States. If you're from one of these uh, number of countries that has been listed, there is a restriction on your ability to enter the US. People who are a refugee from, from Syria, for example, um, also have been sort of banned indefinitely. You know, this isn't uh, unprecedented. There has been it has been done in history, and there have been sort of similar sort of systems. But the scope at, the, at which this kind of is is reaching is something that hasn't really been done before. And the way that it has actually been put in as well, with an executive order uh, which kind of bypasses the the Senate and the House um, in the United States, is is kind of it's sort of an unprecedented move for this particular uh, you know U.S. government. Has a big impact on lots of people who are traveling there now. Justine uh, mentioned in the interview that she was heading to uh, GDC, um, which is set up in the United States. It's the Game Developers Conference. It's the big one that most people make the big trip to. If they make one big international trip, that's the one that they go to. Um, And interestingly enough, a lot of people who are impacted by this thing now can't go. And it's not cheap to go. It's in the, uh, you know, hundreds and, and sometimes thousands of dollars to go along, not including airfares and food and other bits and pieces while you're there. So it is very expensive to kind of to, to uh, make this trip over. GDC, as just a side note, has offered full refunds to people on, well, as uh, as much as they can offer um, in regards to their trips that can't make it because of this situation. But there will be pretty cool. There will be but, people who are affected by this who are, you know, ha- can't get a refund on their flight. because mm-hmm, they, Absolutely. Or, you yeah. know, they booked in their hotel and the hotel now says, oh, look, you're outside of your, uh, you know, window to, to get a refund on that. Devolver Digital, who you um, may remember as a publisher of a game called Hotline Miami and a bunch of other really cool indie games as well, have actually kind of uh, reached out the the branches to uh, people who were going dis- like, to display their game at GDC but weren't able to um, and will have basically set up a little uh, semi-pavilion area where they can people can... Devolver will show off your game if you're not able to go because you're from one of the countries that were affected by this particular, particular uh, restriction. That's really cool. Yeah, and yeah. I think this is one of these things where you know the community is uh, kind of coming together to to sort of look after people within this community. But I mean, there has been talks about whether GDC should be held in the United States if this sort of thing is going to be impacting people. And glo- globally, gaming is huge. There are lots of people who make and play games from all around the world, but Maybe that's you know it, maybe its home is no longer in the United States. Well, um, Valve is just on the, uh, this uh, this episode is all about the Valve train apparently. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, Gabe Newell um, and Eric Johnson actually have commented on the travel ban, uh, both of them from Valve, um, saying that's obviously going to affect them with their hiring and also their esports. Um, but they've also said they came out and said something really interesting that I always um, bring up when people are saying, talking about the funding and just just the, the way that arts are looked at. You've got your highbrow and you know the rest, I guess. So you've got you know um, anyway. Newell said um, if you're an opera singer, it's pretty easy to get a visa. Like the State Department kind of understands who these people are. If you're a Nobel Prize winner, you know they know who you are. Um, you know, but gamers and esports players, especially, this is a new thing, and for them to be taken seriously as far as getting visas and stuff happens, it, it, they are not at that level yet. They have problems all the time, constantly. But like Valve has said, if they're going to run the event, they, they'll run their events no matter what, and they really like to keep it in America. But if they're going to keep, you know, uh, putting up walls, then they will take it elsewhere. I mean, so, the the games, video games' ability to transcend geographical barriers 
is is the idea that I thought would carry us through this, but uh, it it is still very much based on location. We we know this as making this show in in Perth, and we sometimes struggle with time zones and things like that. So I mean, it does matter at the end of the day if you can and cannot enter a certain country. Yeah, and it also means that, say, for example, if you do live in somewhere like Perth, which is the most isolated capital city in the world, you know, making the trip across to GDC is a big impact. Huge and you, deal. And if you're not able to go because your family came from one of the countries that were restricted, um, then that is a huge professional cost, um, but also, you know, a personal cost as well because you're not able to um, pay, you know, get all your money back. Maybe you get, you can, maybe you can't. Who knows? I think what's really interesting is that I think there will be a, uh, and there has already been some challenges to, to how this sort of rule has kind of come into place, but I think it it sort of represents an opportunity for some of these areas outside of the United States to kind of, you know, become this place for um, for people to visit. And I think Melbourne, for example, in Australia, yep. is really well set up for a big international conference of this kind. We, we've already got GCAP, of course, which is for this Asia-Pacific market. But, you know, it's pretty centrally placed between Europe and the United States. It's in a, a very comfortable time, uh, you know, climate and all that sort of thing. And maybe that's where, what we need to see or we need to see shifts to, to Europe. And I'm sure that because uh, there are a lot of people that come out uh, have come out against this. Obviously, we, you mentioned a few. Um, there's Blizzard and Harmonics and um, Insomniac and Electric Arts and Microsoft and the Devolver Digital that you mentioned. Um, you know, I'm sure at some point these uh, these people and these companies will be thinking of these options of like, okay, well, we already have a bunch of people from this country or even people over there. Maybe we should look at doing something over there. Um, and because th- they're all against this and I don't see this kind of attitude towards immigration getting better for the next few years obviously while Trump's kind of are st- still around uh, you know any executive order that is, scrutinizes so kind of uh, wildly and across the board is not going to be good for business there is another angle that people that I, I haven't actually been hearing a lot of people talk about is the, how this is actually impacting on Americans that are traveling out and the fact that when they go, when they come here for example they might be met with a bit of unnecessary hostility and like unnecessary i guess chatter about their political choices that when they may not have necessarily voted for the dude and that might affect their business in australia or whatever if they go somewhere else and that that could negatively affect their creativity and productivity yeah as well definitely it has a a global impact in terms of perceptions and ideas about you know where people sit within the world and you know i guess we you not to to you know go on too much, but we sort of don't know what's going to happen through all this, and you know mm-hmm. hopefully people can use this as good inspiration to create amazing things and to discuss ideas that you know people normally don't get an opportunity to kind of talk about, and you know we could see some cool games out there. So if anybody can't go to GDC, you can come on Pixel Sip. Feel free. <laughs> that, that's yeah. what Johnny's yeah. saying right now. Yeah, we'll, drop us a line. We'll yeah. make opportunity for you to, to get on the show. So, um, you know, we've already seen th- cool things like uh, game jams come out of this as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously you could do a game jam, but, you know, Pixel Sift is where it's at. Yeah, so. this is global, global game jam is like the opposite of this. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, and there's a particular one is called the Resist Jam that's coming out. Whoa. <laughs> the Resist nice. Jam. That's awesome. Yeah, so anyway, <laughs> we'll we'll basically see how it goes. Um, it's kind of still in the courts. There are people kind of um, working out what this means exactly. Well, there's all people working against it as well. There's a bunch of mobile developers that have like donated revenues to the American American Civil Liberties Unions efforts uh, fighting the ban. 
uh, or introduced messages into their games calling for more support from players. So there is a lot of grassroots initiatives out there. If you feel like you need, if you know, you, you're really against this and there, there are things that you can do. So, you know. Get out there and do some research. Yeah. Make a difference. <laughs> that's right. As we do every week here on Pixel Sit, we make a difference. Uh, that's all that we've got time for today. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to Justine for joining us earlier in the day uh, to talk all about the Township Tale. It's really a very interesting experience. So Next time she's here, she'll talk about wrestling. Yeah, next time she's going to talk about wrestling. But uh, if you have an opportunity to, you should definitely give that one a go. Uh, look, we have a bunch of older episodes, don't we, Mitch? Yes, you can find them all on our website. You click on the episodes link or you can get them on iTunes, Pocket Casts or the any good podcast player of choice. Look, if you're in America as well, <laughs> maybe things are going on there, but at least you can get Pixel Sift on Google Play. You can, well. yes. So that's Welcome. that's definitely something you we can can't. look forward to. Uh, we can't have it here, but, you know, whatever. Scott, uh, if people want to find us on social media and keep up to date with what we're doing. Yes, they can find us at facebook.com forward slash pixel sift, twitter.com forward slash pixel sift, twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift, and youtube.com forward slash pixel sift au. And look, if you could give us a rating and review We'd really appreciate it. Uh, it helps people find the show and it helps us chat to a bunch of cool people from all around the world. That's all we've got time for, but thank you very much for joining us. Peace out. Bye. Today's episode of Pixel Sift is brought to you by Audible. It's over 180,000 titles for you to listen to on your iPhone, your Kindle, your MP3 player, and more. If you'd like to get a free trial, your free audiobook, you can head to www.audibletrial.com forward slash Pixel Sift and grab one there.